Good morning. Welcome. Okay, so, yeah, it's summer. I'm on holiday because I'm a teacher. So, um, yeah, this is a bit weird having to actually do things. Okay, so, good morning. Welcome. I get the joy of starting our new kind of teaching series, which is just running through for the summer, which is about stories Jesus told, which is parables. Um, So I get to talk about the greatest treasure today, and we're going to be looking at Matthew uh, verses 13, 44 to 45. Um, really short. Okay, Normally you can rely on the Bible verses to fill at least a few minutes of your preach, but not today. So, yeah, it'll keep us busy. We'll look at that in a moment. But the first question that I want to ask you about today is, what is the most valuable thing that you own? Mm. What is the most valuable thing you own? No, maybe it's a car, maybe it's a house, maybe it's, I don't know, what else to pe- jewellery, yeah? Maybe it's an instrument. <laughs> maybe you don't own anything of value whatsoever. <laughs> okay, well, generally speaking, when advertisers are looking at this, then they think about something is worth what people will pay for it. And so you can see... On the pyramid here, I got this. This is the elements of value. So this is what makes something valuable. Okay, so when you're looking at selling things to people, so if you want to start a business today, here's a bit of handy hints for you. So at the top, does it have a a social impact? You know, does it make our lives better? Does it make society's lives better? Is it life-changing? Does it provide people with hope or self-actualization? or motivation, or is it an heirloom, affiliation, or belonging? So does it reduce anxiety? Does it reward the person? Does it bring feelings of nostalgia? Um, does its design or its aesthetics please people? Does it have a badge value? Yeah, do people see the label and think, oh, yeah, so they'll pay more for that? Does it increase people's feeling of wellness or therapeutic value? Is it fun? Give them entertainment? Is it attractive? Does it provide them access to something they wouldn't originally have? Is it functional? Does it save them time? Does it simplify their life? Does it make them money? Does it reduce risk? Does it help them organize? Does it help them integrate? Does it help them connect? Does it reduce their effort? Does it avoid hassle? Does it reduce cost? Does it increase quality? Does it provide variety for them? Is there sensory appeal in it? And does it inform them? So if you can get all of those things, then people will pay a fortune for it. It will be very valuable. But if you can include any of those elements, and the more that you can include, the better, then the more people will pay for it. So allegedly, the more valuable it is. But the thing is that we know that actually the things that are most valuable to people are the things that money can't buy, aren't they? So we might have items that are valuable in terms of how much they're worth, people will pay for them. But actually, when you Google it, when you look at it, the things that you can't buy, love, connection, um, community, care, time, they're all things that actually are, you know, are um, priceless to people, aren't they? And so today we're looking at what Jesus considers valuable and how we can get involved with that. So let's look at this parable today. So we're in Matthew 
chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. So I'll give you a minute. You can turn to it on your phone or in your Bibles, or it's on the screen for you as well. Okay. So these are two very short parables, but they're telling a very similar message. So Jesus was um, teaching... And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So that's what we're looking at today, what Jesus considers valuable. So when we're studying the parables, I've managed to come up with four words that start with S. Some of them are a slightly tenuous link, but I'm very proud of myself for this. It took me quite a long time sitting down thinking about this. So we have to look at the setting. So what was happening in Jesus' ministry and his life at the time that he told the parable? Because that's really important. We have to look at the situation, what was happening around them, what was happening with the people of Israel, with the Jewish nation at that time. We have to look for the symbols in the parable and find out the important symbols and what they are representing. And then we have to work out, using all of those things, then what is the significance for us today of those things, of the story that Jesus was telling. Before we get into it, I thought it would be fun for us to watch a video about some real-life metal detectors who found some hidden treasure in a field. So hopefully this is going to (laughs) work. Oh, my God. There's pennies everywhere. That's the sound of when you know you've hit the jackpot. Yeah, there's another one. Lovely. Let me check again. Old coins worth big money. These detectorists estimate this haul is worth up to £5 million. There were signals everywhere, and you start to think, oh, maybe there could be another coin. And there was, and then, you know, well, what about all the other beeps? And there was just more coins, and more beeps. And they were beeps. coming up in clumps of hundreds, really. Yeah, so it was pretty exciting. I've never seen so many Saxon and Norman pennies. We counted out all the coins. We uh, liaised with the British Museum to come and bring them in. We drove in, they opened the front gates, and we drove in through the crowds with millions of pounds worth of coins in a washing-up bowl. But Adam, Lisa and their group of treasure hunters will have to wait a couple more years to cash in. The law requires you to hand over a find like this to a local coroner to confirm its authenticity. If it is declared treasure, the finder must offer it for sale to a museum as a price set by an independence committee. The Roman bars have already expressed an interest in acquiring the collection. It's nice to know that the coins will be catalogued professionally. Obviously, we've got to wait a small amount of time for that to happen. But yeah, it could always be quicker. (laughs) These coins date back to a time where life was very different. The Norman conquest of England was well underway, and this haul could have brought you a herd of 500 sheep. So how did it end up getting buried in Somerset? I think uncertainty of some sort is very likely to be behind this burial. There were no banks in this period, so burying things in the ground was the safest thing that people could do. Unfortunately, it wasn't always possible to go back and reclaim what was buried. Almost 1,000 years later, The loss is this couple's gain. They've been metal detecting for over 15 years and they've learned this priceless advice along the way. Try and be very, very patient because you don't just go out there and find gold immediately. uh, It takes a long time to find something. Another one there. There's another. 
Try, try, try again. The old adage finally pays off. Ryan Ramgobin, 5 News. So I thought that would give us a really helpful picture of what we're talking about today. And uh, if that's inspired you, then uh, Norfolk apparently is the place in the UK to head. They found more treasure there in the last few years than anywhere else in the UK. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> new day. Yeah, they could all go off with their metal detectors. So any of you want to send your young people tomorrow with their metal detectors, they might come back with a haul. Um, but I just thought that was helpful to kind of um, picture what it's actually like when you find treasure hidden in a field, because that is one of the stories that Jesus was telling. And it was obviously something that was happening around him at that time. So let's start with the first S and let's look at the setting. So Jesus was traveling throughout Galilee. He was teaching. He was drawing huge crowds and uh, they were listening to these stories that he was telling. And actually in the stories that um, he's just told, the crowds had been so big that he'd had to go out on a boat on the lake so he could teach them. Um, And then he kind of goes away with his disciples to explain more about it to them. Uh, The Pharisees... So, ooh... Okay, the Pharisees are trying to um, plot against him at this point. So they've kind of caught on to what he's teaching about. And they've realized that they're not happy about what he's teaching. They've kind of broken the code and they realize that he's not really their fan, their biggest fan. And uh, so they're starting to plot to kill him. And so in every interaction that he's having with them, they're trying to trick him. So they're asking him questions or they're putting him in situations and then they're trying to catch him out constantly. But these huge crowds are following him. So Jesus was actually talking in parables and they are stories that are deliberately cryptic. So in Matthew 13 verse 10, his disciples actually ask him about why he teaches in parables. And Jesus answers, if I just find it, Matthew 13... This was easier at home. Matthew 13, verse 10. Um, The disciples came to Jesus and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Those seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. So there was a deliberate crypticness to the stories that Jesus was telling. There were hidden meanings to them in order to hide his message enough that he wasn't killed straight away. (laughs) So there was a timing in Jesus's ministry that was necessary. And if he'd just come straight out and said, what he was about and what he was doing really openly, they'd have just marched him off and killed him straight away. So actually, there's um, a sense that the the parables conceal as much as they reveal. So there is a little bit of work that we need to do with them. Um, Okay. But Jesus usually explains the meaning of his parables to his disciples. And actually, that is the situation that we find ourselves in in 
the parables that we're looking at. Actually, the crowds, Jesus has withdrawn from the crowds and he's explained one of the previous parables to his disciples. And then he doesn't share these two parables with the whole crowd. He shares these two parables with his disciples. Okay. So they are just to people who are following him that he wants to hear. So he's teaching them something that is for them, not for all the crowds. Okay, so then we need to look at the situation. So that was the setting. So Jesus teaching to the crowds, but actually withdraws, explains some things to his disciples so they can understand these hidden meanings, these concealed meanings in the parables. And then we have to look at the wider situation of what's happening with the Jewish nation and the Jewish teachers at this time. And we find this story in the book of Matthew. And Matthew was really writing his gospel from the point of view of wanting to persuade Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, so obviously the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah um, and he wanted to persuade them that Jesus was this Messiah that they'd been waiting for. And also the new church that was being birthed and built was full of Jewish and Gentile converts. So he was trying to bring them together and help them to really have this full understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew includes more teaching on the kingdom than any of the other gospel writers. And that's because this is the theme that unites Jews and Gentiles um, as they look for the coming kingdom. But there's a massive difference in how these two communities or two sets of beliefs perceived the kingdom of God. So Jews had a huge expectancy of the Messiah and the age that was to come. But the Christian experience of that was very different from what they were expecting. So in Jewish beliefs, the kingdom is wholly a future thing to come. They weren't expecting a Messiah to come and be crucified and then it all to seem to finish. They were under Roman occupation. They were expecting a Messiah to ride in in glory and triumph, take out the enemies and bring them back to the full glory of the Jewish nation. That's what they were expecting. They saw the present time as the the evil age. Okay, so it was a time that they had to live through while they waited for the Messiah to arrive. But obviously Christians, as Christians we believe, and the Christians at the time believed, that the Messiah had already arrived in Jesus, and that he'd returned to heaven, but he was going to come again. So actually Christians are believing that the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. The kingdom of God arrived in Jesus... But actually, we also coexist during the present evil age. And there's this story that Jesus was telling that he's just explained to his disciples before the parables that we get to here, which is about the wheat and the tares. So it's about a farmer having a field, and the field is a picture of the world. And he plants these um, wheat to grow. But actually, overnight, um, an evil man comes and plants Seeds that look like wheat, tares, but actually aren't. And when they're very young, these plants, you can't tell the difference. So some of the farmers, uh, farmers' assistants go, oh, we'll go and we'll just pull up the tares 
And the farmer says, no, no, you can't do it because you won't be able to tell the difference. We've got to let them both grow together until the time of harvest. And then it's really obvious which are wheat and which are tares and you can accurately um, harvest and get rid of the, the ones that are rubbish. So Jesus was telling that story. He explains it to his disciples just before the parables we get to, that actually Christians and non-Christians, God's kingdom and the evil age actually coexist together. And at times it can be difficult to tell one from the other. And actually we can wonder why there's suffering and why things are allowed to continue. But actually it's so that at the end of the age when there is a judgment, because that is what scripture teaches actually it will be really evident what is God's kingdom and what isn't and he will be he will judge fairly on that so Jesus tells that story and I've included this picture because Sally Taylor from um is it Taylor no not Sally Taylor Sally Clark sorry I'm going mad Sally Taylor who is Sally Taylor I don't even know a Sally Taylor Sally Clark from do I Okay, never mind, sorry, I'm just going mad. Um, it's my age. Um, so Sally Clark from our Chichester site, um, she's actually grown wheat over this holiday. And she was talking about how they had to separate the wheat from the tares and collect the seeds. So I just asked her for a little photo of that because I thought it helped us to understand it. So we had this massive issue of how the Jews perceived the kingdom would be and how Jesus was explaining the kingdom would be. <laughs> And they weren't the same thing at all. You also have this issue in that the Jews thought all of them were good enough to enter the kingdom of God that was to come. So they were waiting for this kingdom and they assumed they were all going to make it because they were the Jews. So they were going to make the kingdom automatically. But Jesus not only said that the kingdom isn't going to come in one fell swoop. It's going to be messy. You're going to have the evil age coexisting with the kingdom and there's still going to be pain and there's still going to be things that get messed up and things that go wrong. But he was also saying it's an upside down kingdom. So we read in Romans chapter 9 verse 30. Um. What then shall we say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So Jesus was revealing and teaching about a kingdom where tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners were welcome, but some of the most appearing righteous people of his day, the Pharisees, would not be because they were going to stumble over him. They were going to stumble over Jesus as the Messiah. They weren't going to accept him and his rule. And so that's why, as they started to understand his message, they wanted to kill him. Because it was not what they wanted to hear. So that's the setting and um, the situation that Jesus was telling this parable into. 
So now we need to look at the symbols. So in the first parable, we see that the symbols are the field, the treasure, and the man. Now, believe it or not, my family will tell you, they've had to listen to me chewing this for rather a long time, (laughs) just trying to decide, because the parables do have a hidden meaning, and it's really important that you look at these symbols and you think about what they mean, but it's also really important that you don't get carried away and see a symbol in everything and read into it stuff that isn't there. So I've been really studying and listening to God and trying to understand these symbols, and I've been one way and then I've been another, and I've landed with, I think it is the most obvious meaning, So, in, but there are lots of different interpretations of this. So I feel like Jesus, in his previous parables, he talks about the field being the world, and that's in this passage of Matthew as well. So I feel like the, the field represents the world. Obviously, the treasure is something of infinite value. Okay, so he's talking about something of infinite value. And I've umdenied over what I think that treasure represents. Is it Jesus? Is it us? But I think it actually is the kingdom of God. Because I think what he's teaching about in this passage is all about the kingdom of God. So I think the treasure is the kingdom of God. His kingdom on earth and the kingdom that is to come. And then we're not clear about the man. I looked at the root of the word and all this kind of stuff. Um, Some people think it's Jesus. Some people think it's us and it's about the gospel I think it does, it kind of represents us in this, is my understanding where I've landed with it. Okay, but you can read other interpretations into it. So we've got a man representing humanity or a person who is looking or finds the kingdom of God hidden. And then he sells everything he has for it. Okay, so Jesus has been teaching. Um, that this kingdom is going to be unlike anything that they were expecting. Now he's teaching them that not only is it unexpected, not only is it upside down, but it's also hidden, and you have to seek it. And as we heard in that clip, in these days, it was really common for people to bury their treasure in fields. There were no formal banks. Um. And so people would bury treasure. And we don't know if this guy was looking, if he was like a metal detectorist of his day, watching every field in case someone came to bury some treasure. Or if he just stumbled upon it one day. Was he just walking along and out the corner of his eye saw someone burying some treasure and thought, oh, and no one else was there. No one else saw it. So he thought, I know what I need to do. I need to buy that field. Why somebody buried their treasure in a field that they didn't own? I don't know. I guess that was common back then as well. But it was clear that he could buy that field. So he saw it. And sometimes people stumble across the gospel, don't they? They're not really looking for it. Actually, God just breaks in. And suddenly they've seen something or they've heard something. And they realize there's treasure there. This is the most valuable thing ever. Sometimes people are searching hard for it. They're watching, they're waiting, they're digging. They're looking into things. Reading different um, holy scriptures and all these kinds of things. They're, They're looking, they're searching, they're trying out the occult. They're trying all sorts of different things 
because they realize there's something more. But actually, in both cases, they get treasure they hadn't worked for and they hadn't earned, don't they? They get somebody else's treasure. And it is hidden, but they realize its value, so they sell everything. So again, the Jews were expecting um, a Messiah to arrive with trumpet sounds, defeating all Israel's enemies in a moment. But Jesus, again, in the passage before this, is revealing that his kingdom is one that starts as small as a mustard seed, as invisible as yeast in dough, but is unstoppable, spreads and grows until it's visible all over the earth. And the person, when they, when they bought this field and they got this treasure, they knew even though they'd given everything for it, they were getting something far more valuable than they'd given up. And um, this was really weird to me because this verse links here in Isaiah 55 verse 1. And I actually brought this last week during the worship. Um, it was what I felt that we needed to start the meeting with. And I, I hadn't made the link between this and the parable that I was going to be teaching on this week. But in Isaiah 55 verse 1, it says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised um, to David. And this is directly linked to that parable. So it's that sense of when you discover the kingdom of God, even though you might have to give everything for it, you are getting something so much more valuable in return. So it is costly, but it is completely worth it. Um, and then in the second parable, we see that it is a, the symbols in that one are the pearl and the merchant. So again, the pearl is the, um, representing the kingdom of God, and the merchant is representing someone who is searching for the best most valuable pearl they can find. So this person we know is searching and looking, okay? And a pearl merchant would spend their life studying pearls. And my mum, she used to love telling me this story. She'd always say, oh, in the olden days... Um, sorry, I don't know why my mum's got that voice. Sorry, mum. In the olden days, they would get people to spot forgeries on banknotes, not by showing them all the forgeries, but by having them sit and study the real banknotes. So they would let them look at them and hold them and stare at them and, I don't know, spend time in a locked room with them. I have no idea how they do it. But they would get so familiar with the real thing that they would be instantly be able to spot a forgery. And actually, this pearl merchant would have been like this, but with pearls. 
He'd have known so much about pearls. He'd have been such an expert that even if all the dealers were trying to pass him off fake pearls or pearls that weren't very good, he would know when he was getting the real deal. And the kingdom of God's like that, isn't it? Actually, you can tell. If you, if you spend time with God, if you spend time in the word of God, you can spot a forgery. You can. You can tell what the real deal is. You can tell where the kingdom of God really is and where it's not. Um, and so Jesus was saying in that as well, that if you were studying the scriptures, if you were listening to Jesus and what he was saying, if you were truly searching for God, then you would find him because you'd realize, you'd realize the authentic in amongst the frauds. And Jesus spent a lot of his time saying, those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And that is because the parables had these hidden meanings. Actually, they weren't revealed to everybody. It was those who were seeking and who were listening and had eyes open and ears open to hear what God was saying about this different kingdom. And again, we have this story where this pearl merchant, once he found this pearl, he knew it was the real deal. He knew how valuable it was, and so he sold everything else. And again, he knew what he was getting was worth far more than anything else he gave up to get it. But success wasn't automatic. He wasn't given the pearl until he'd done something about it. It required faith. He had to trust that he'd found the real deal. He had to go and sell everything he had. And then he had to give all that up to get the pearl. So it did require faith on his part in what he'd seen and heard. So what is the significance for us of all of this? We've studied this today. We've heard about it in its context, at its time, in its situation, what Jesus was teaching, how revolutionary that was for people. But what does that mean for us today? Firstly, the kingdom of God is real. And it's here now. It isn't just something that we long for. Obviously, there's an outpouring of the kingdom of God and there's the end of the age where there will be no more tears and no more suffering and no more pain and no more death. And we long for that. But the kingdom of God is here now as well. It isn't just to come. It's the wheat and the tares. The wheat is here now. God's kingdom is here now. And Jesus said that we are living in a time that many longed for. So if you read in Matthew um, 13, verse 17, so that's just before the passage that we get to. Oh, sorry. Um, he's talking to his disciples, and he said, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. We are living in the time of the kingdom of God. And when we read back in the Bible, all the things that people, all the prophets were speaking, they were longing for this time that we are living in now. Maybe this morning, you just need your faith to rise again, to realize that the kingdom of God is here and now. 
It isn't just something to look forward to for the future. The kingdom of God is unexpected. It might not look like we thought it would. The tears are still growing with the wheat. Maybe you've got disillusioned or disheartened. Maybe you've looked around to everything that's happening in the world and all you can see are the tears. (laughs) And you just feel like giving up. Actually, God wants to say to you, no, it's in his hands, it's in his timing. The wheat is growing as well. He has it in control. Maybe this morning you're searching. You know there's something in this world that money can't buy, that you just can't create on your own, that you can't manufacture, that you can't get. You know there's something more, and you're searching Well, Jesus is here today, and he's longing to meet with you. And if you're searching for him, you will find him. And if you're searching for the kingdom of God, and you've got eyes to hear and ears, eyes to see and ears to hear, you will find the kingdom of God. You will find what you're searching for. That's his promise. Maybe today there's a cost to following Jesus for you. And I don't want to make this really heavy, but Jesus is clear that it costs everything to follow him. And maybe there's areas of compromise or things that you've not been willing to give up. Um, In Luke 14, verse 33, Jesus is talking about um, another story and the cost of being a disciple and he uses very strong language. Now, he's using that deliberately to stir up people and make them, he's not actually saying anyone should hate his father and mother and all that kind of stuff. But he's just making a, a point by exaggeration. But he says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Whoa. It's hard, isn't it? I didn't want to read that this morning because I don't want to hear that. There's lots of things that I really like. But God is good and we trust him. And actually, we know that anything he calls us to give up, we get something far more valuable in return. Remember that pearl merchant was willing to give up everything else because he knew that pearl was of greater value. The guy who bought the field knew that what he'd get from the field was worth far more than he could ever give up. So it's about spending that time with God. It's about letting him speak into your heart about the value of his kingdom, about the value of what he's giving you. That gives you the faith then to let everything else go for that thing. Um, And it doesn't mean that we can't have things or anything like that. But God will just speak to you about issues or areas where he wants you to trust him enough to let those things go for something greater. And Paul talks about this in Philippians, which is always really difficult to find. I don't know. Oh, there we go. I don't know why it's always so difficult to find. But in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, and righteousness that comes from God, uh, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Um, 
So Paul as well had found that actually following Jesus costs everything, but what you get is worth far more than rubies. We talked at the start about what is the most valuable thing, and actually the most valuable things are priceless. They're things you can't buy. And Jesus is saying that his kingdom and following his way is actually the most precious of all things. It's worth more than anything else. But also, we know that ultimately, Jesus paid the full cost for us to come into the kingdom. So there is a way that you can read this parable, which actually reads like, let me just find it again. Um, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. You could read it as we are God's treasure. We are precious to him, hidden in the world. And Jesus is the man He gives up everything for that treasure. That's a different interpretation. That's not the one I chose to go with today. But I believe there is something in that of helping us to understand. Jesus didn't just say, you have to give up everything to follow me and didn't do anything about it himself. He actually gave himself. He gave his life. He gave up everything Because he saw what was to come. He saw the greater prize at the end of it. So he never asks of us anything that he hasn't been prepared to do himself. And actually he's done far more than we ever could. And I don't want to end on a heavy note today. Jesus has done it all. We can come into the kingdom through him. It's his righteousness. It's not us earning it. Yes, we might look. We might search. We might just stumble across it. But it's always him that does it. It's him that started this. It's him that finishes this. It's him that pays for us and brings us into the kingdom of God. But it's just a reminder today of how precious that kingdom is. And just a bit of a challenge of, have we got our hearts right about that? Are we in faith for the future? Do we see God's hand at work? Do we see that the kingdom is here and now? Have we been prepared to lay everything down to follow Jesus because we realize the worth of what we've got and what we will have? Okay. Should we just pray for a moment? I just feel like it'd be good to pray. Lord, we can try and communicate. (laughs) But it... These are um, just truths that can be far beyond almost what we can understand. Lord, I just pray that you would settle in our hearts now whatever we need to hear from this morning. Holy Spirit, would you highlight to people, to each one of us, what you want us to hear this morning, what you want us to take away. Lord, have we been searching for you? Lord, thank you that we find you, that you've been searching for us all along and you find us. Thank you that whatever we give up for you, Lord, we get far more in return. Help us not to hold anything as more precious than you and your kingdom. 
Give us eyes to see what you're doing in the world, Lord, to see that your kingdom is here now, not to lose heart, not to grow faint, Lord, but to be strengthened, to see what you're doing, to pray into what you're doing. And Lord, let us see more of your kingdom here on earth. Lord, thank you that your kingdom is here now. But Lord, we want to see more signs of it. We want to see more healings. We want to see more people getting saved. Lord, we want to see Bogner and England and the UK and the world transformed by your gospel and by your kingdom, Lord. Thank you for your presence here, Lord. Just raise our expectations, Lord. I pray against any voice of condemnation or any heaviness or any legalism, Lord, that might try and come in. We just pray that we would hear in grace your whisper of love calling us to something deeper. Thank you, Lord. Amen.